0: Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people in politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Janice Lee, a director on the BART board and a staff member of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. We're talking today about all the hot BART topics, including whether to ban panhandling on trains, how to deal with fare evasion, and the move to eliminate paper tickets. Plus, she names the best and worst stations in the entire BART system. We'll be right back with Janice Lee. Janice Lee, thank you so much for coming today. Of course. First, I thought we'd do a little getting to know you session for listeners. Um, If you can give me the two-minute summary of your life,
1: uh, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, and what you do now. So I was born in Hong Kong. Um, I, I'm 32 years old, so you can guess that year, if uh-huh. you'd like. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong, but I moved to the U.S. at a really young age. My family, my mother, my father, my older brother, we moved actually to New Jersey when I was about two years old. Then when I was 10, we moved up to Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. where generally I say I grew up in Buffalo, it's where parts of my heart and soul are born and raised in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, and then I went down and to New York City for my undergraduate. I went to New York University. After that, um, I graduated when the recession really hit, and I knew I didn't want to be in New York anymore, so I went back and lived and worked in the city of Buffalo, Mm -hmm. um, working for an amazing nonprofit organization called People United for Sustainable Housing. I loved that job, but about four and a half years in, um, I knew I was likely going to move away from Buffalo, closed my eyes, put a finger on a map, and it was San Francisco. Really? It was that was about it. I, I wish I had a- One
0: of the most expensive cities in the world. I know.
1: I wish I had a more clever, like cool story or this <laughs> life-changing moment. It was more that I knew I was going to move away from Buffalo, Um, but uh, it's been close to six years I've uh, jumped on the San Francisco journey, so it's, I've not been in San Francisco that long, um, but you know, have never looked back. I really love it here. I've come to deeply love the city, and there's so much about the city that- um, means a lot to me. So I started as a community organizer at the SF by Coalition back in 2013. Um, a couple of years later I got promoted and I still serve in that role as advocacy director. Mm-hmm. And then last year, um, foolishly decided to run for office.
0: Yeah, that That's- was going to be my next question. Why in the world did you want to do that?
1: <sighs> Great question. Um, there's so, sort of- <laughs> I'm just going to tell this story. I've told it a couple of times it's funny in that, um, I was actually asked really early on to consider running. I've been working in the transportation space for a while on the advocacy side. One of my very niche things has been around transportation funding um, and really more deeply understanding transit, transit policy. And so I think as Nick Joseph was and his run for District 2 supervisor crystallized, a lot of people were trying to figure out who would fill that um, BART District 8 seat to represent the west side of San Francisco. People asked me. Um, The first person who asked me, and he's told this story before, was Assemblymember Phil Ting. Mm -hmm. Um, It was maybe summer, fall of 2017, so quite early. And I was so taken aback. And I was so both, like, humbled, but also like, absolutely not, Phil. How could you ask me that? And he tells a story that I was so adamant and, like, clearly not interested in running that he never bothered me again about it. And lo and behold... (laughs) Several months later, um, people asked me Iran again. This was after the June 2018 uh, election, after a really intense mayoral race. Um, and I think that after that June election, people were really looking forward to what was happening in November again and really looking at what the races were, looking who was running, seeing what that looked like, the context of that election looked like. And um, people started asking me again. And I think it was a confluence of many factors. I think first was, um, it was a far better time and place for myself personally, professionally. Um, made a lot more sense versus why I was originally asked um, several months earlier. The other thing is that where BART is right now is a really unique and exciting, fascinating, and incredibly difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think two things I was really excited by. Um, first is Measure RR past. Uh, back in 2016 with you know tons of voter approval, and the new fleet is coming online. So a lot of these massive capital projects, we are no longer sort of scraping at the you know, bottom mm-hmm. of the bucket, trying to scrape together what funds we can. Um, those voter-approved funds are huge, and it's an exciting time to be able to see the implementation of that, um, whether it's bringing on the new fleet, getting a new train control system, um, all of the access improvements, the 90 million dollars for replacing all the downtown escalators in San Francisco. That's incredible. Um, and also, there was new momentum at the board. For a long time, there were many people who were serving on the BART board for over 20 years. They were generally older, white, retired men. Um, and uh, Right now, the board has nine folks, Mm -hmm. and six of those folks were either elected in 2016 or 2018, and no one is on the board who's been serving for more than about a dozen years. And so I think there was a lot of new energy and new momentum to really look at the kind of agency BART is, um, the kind of transit service it is, and the way it serves the region today in 2019. Um, And I think all those things made it really compelling for me to run.
0: People have really strong feelings about BART these days. I was wondering, I'm sure you hear a lot from writers who have very strong opinions. What are the biggest gripes
1: that you hear about? I think it depends who I talk to. Um, I think there's always something happening. And you can't ever plan or predict it. And so that might be seeing, you know, poop in your elevator Mm -hmm. that might be, um, you know, having to deal with, um, you know, whether it's lack of cleanliness, whether it's folks that uh, might be marginally housed who are at the stations and are making folks feel uncomfortable. That might be I paid a fare and that person looked like they didn't. Mm -hmm. That seems unfair to me. Um, And then right now, um, Sunday service is really, really, you know, a struggle, yeah. Um, and I think that quickly coming to the top of the complaints I see is Sunday service and just lack of um, reliable, predictable service on weekends.
0: Why is that? Why is it so much harder on Sunday? Yeah.
1: So there, there's two things that are massive capital projects that are really affecting BART service. Uh, first is a later five a.m. opening. Um, so BART previously would be open at four a.m. Starting in February of this year, we began um, five a.m. opening. Um, And that was specifically so that we could shorten the time that was needed to do major seismic uh, retrofit work for the Transbay tube. Mm -hmm. And that is just we need to do that. Um, That was coming out of um, the previous bond measure for uh, that BART received, not the 2014 one, um, but the one around seismic retrofitting um, and resiliency. And specifically for Sunday service is because we are single tracking quite a bit on Sundays. Um, And that is so that we can get the new traction power control system. Said that right? (laughs) Um, Functioning, and that's going to be you know total modernization of our train controls. That'll lead to the total modernization our train control system. It'll let us run more trains and run the trains more closely together, which is going to bring a significant boost to capacity through the Transbay Tube, certainly, um, without you know getting to the second Transbay rail crossing Mm -hmm. yet, um, but we are really going to need those capacity increases as the region grows, and those are coming out of Measure RR voter-approved funds. Um, But uh, I think, you know, when you get voter-approved funds to do massive capital work, a lot of times it gets worse before it really gets better. Um, But I have a lot of trust in BART's ability to deliver on these capital projects. We get regular updates um, but I know it's a struggle. I've been impacted myself, mm-hmm. and I think the hardest thing right now is the lack of predictability. Um, so, you know, I've been really pushing on BART staff to make sure that information is accurate, um, you know, the arrival times are accurate, um, and people know what to expect when they arrive at BART. Mm-hmm.
0: A big issue that's come up recently on the BART board is um, whether to ban panhandling on BART. And I know that you're opposed to it. Um, you've made that pretty clear. <laughs> I was wondering if you can explain... A, why this has come up at all. It seems Mm -hmm. to be kind of a non issue compared to a lot of other things happening in the system, and B, why you're so opposed to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you put it right. I mean, right now we have falling ridership, especially on weekends um, and to a certain degree on weeknights. Um, We are seeing plummeted customer satisfaction survey uh, numbers uh, coming out of the survey that was conducted last year. And we know that. The top issue is not busking and panhandling. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, people have a variety of opinions. But for me, my number one question is how does a system serve people and what is happening with our ridership and how can we gain trust with our ridership and with the public again? And I don't think focusing on panhandling gets us there. Um, however, this item will be coming before the board this October. One of my fellow board colleagues, uh, Director Deborah Allen, um, has brought this up. And so it will be heard later this fall. Um, for me, I'm just against, I'm just against an outright ban. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have questions around the constitutionality. Um, I know that we've received a letter and I've spoken with folks at ACLU of Northern California. Um, and there's really good case examples in Sacramento and elsewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. New York City's MTA has, you know, had their fair share of cases around this. Um I also really am confused at why punitive measures gets us to the system we want to build. We're, we're talking about world-class transit. You know, when people, why well, overwhelmingly here, when my friends visit other countries, are like, I was just in, you know, Tokyo. I was just in Paris. Like, and let me tell you about that transit <laughs> system. I was like, yes. yes I was I just know. in London. And <laughs> you were much better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Everyone has that story. And London didn't get to their transit system by saying, no, don't do that, no, don't do that, um, these are the rules, these are the rules, right? They build out the vision of the kind of system that they want to see that the, that, you know, folks who live in London deserve, right? Mm-hmm. And that moves people in a way that's affordable, accessible, all of those things. I don't think punitive measures that rely solely on enforcement get gets us there. Mm-hmm. I, I think this goes back to the like telling people don't poop here, <laughs> don't piss here, is not going to stop people from doing that. But the funds that the Bart Board just approved to get pit stops and extend, you know, pit stops at Powell Street, 16th Street stations, will make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, reopening bathrooms will make a difference, and the fact that we're going to be doing that at 19th Street, Oakland, and we just approved that funding as well, makes a real difference, right? Mm-hmm. So let's build the system we want to see, and not just have punitive policies that stop that. Also. I mean, when it comes specifically to the busking side of things, um, I spent a good amount of time in New York City, and I feel like so many other cities around the world have truly embraced arts mm-hmm. and really embraced transit stations as public spaces, uh, civic spaces, where things like busking and street performances and art is embraced and part of the culture of those mm-hmm. spaces. Makes it better rather it than it makes worse. it better. Yeah. And so I really want to think about this opportunity to actually build a policy that um, enlivens our stations, um, brings more pride to our stations, um, and gets people excited about taking transit, um, and makes our transit system unique in mm-hmm. other ways that we've seen, you know, around the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Another issue that's come up at Bart has been um, the decision to move to only Clipper cards and do away with paper tickets, which you've also. I follow you on Twitter, so I know. I know all of your opinions. Um, I was wondering if you can lay out your concerns. With yeah.
1: That. Um, listen, I mean, I think that cashless systems make a lot of sense. Bureaucratically, they make a lot of sense. Uh, in so many different ways, it's modern. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest questions is if we have a vision, how are we getting there and are we leaving behind anyone in the process? I think about that for all sorts of transportation, mobility, housing, everything. Um, I think we can all generally, I would like to think we can coalesce on vision. Um, Even here in San Francisco with occasionally trashy and toxic politics, I think we have a Coherent vision that we can get people excited about, but it's always about how do we get there from where we are today. I think for Clipper, um, I'm very concerned about the pilot that just launched uh, on August 19th at Embarcadero Station, which is one of the three stations in my district. Um, it's about to launch later this September at Powell Station. It's already at 19th Street, Oakland, um, where uh, passengers, riders will no longer be able to buy mag stripe paper tickets, those magnetic stripe mm-hmm. tickets. Um, from the kiosks um, at those stations, and you can only purchase clipper cars, which are three bucks a pop. Um, my concern is that uh, Embarcadero Station is the most busy station in the entire system. Number two is Montgomery. Um, BART, uh, the, we, the data we use to quantify that is by the number of exits via the fare gates, Um, Air has about 48,000 exits per weekday. Montgomery is about 45,000. Everything else is much smaller. Once you get to Powell, it drops to about 25,000, 26,000 exits a day. Out of those 48,000 exits at Air Station, 87.7% of them are Clipper. That's incredible. The fact that Clipper adoption is already so high and the moves that BART has made has gone Clipper adoption to 87.7% is amazing. My question is, what happens to the 12.3% of folks, and who are they? Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, both anecdotally, um, so a little technical, from the Title VI equity analysis that was done for Magstripe surcharge, we know that the people who don't use Clipper are overwhelmingly infrequent riders, weekend riders, probably more families, and probably more low-income folks, and probably people where – Um, Clipper machines are confusing, so Mm -hmm. generally immigrants, monolingual speakers who find the Clipper machines Mm -hmm. difficult to use. 12.3% is not nothing. It's about 6,000 of those exits a day. And my question is, are we hurting our ridership by the policy decisions we're using, and are we bringing everyone along as we get to this future that's Clipper only and cashless? Um, And right now, I don't think that the mitigation measures are strong enough um, I've done a lot of work in the Chinese community, as particularly while I was running, and I've heard so much about how the system is really, really inaccessible, particularly for Chinese seniors who are a very transit-dependent population. Um, you know, you just gotta ride the 38 Geary or the eight, you know, Bayshore any given day, um, and despite that, Bart is still a very inaccessible system, um, unaffordable in some ways too. Um, But now the Clipper machines, it's hard to figure out how to change a language. If you ride BART, none of the maps are in Chinese, and only on the new fleet of the future do you have anything translated. Um, So I want to be mindful of who we're leaving out of this system Mm -hmm. as we are moving to a more Clipper-only future. Mm
0: -hmm. And, of course, that subject affects only people who do pay on BART, and there are a lot of people who are – evading fares. Um, that's also also been a big topic of conversation for you guys lately. Uh, what do you think is the best way to handle that? And do you like the new double-decker fare gates, which some people say are beheading devices?
1: Yeah, that's a really complicated topic. I would say, you know, as we were talking about how do people feel about pen handling, how do people feel about busking, um, we know from our customer satisfaction survey that fare evasion is a top-of-mind issue for folks. Um, and, you know, as I talk to, I, I ride BART a lot. Um, I talk to a lot of folks who ride BART every day as they're part of their daily commute. Um, and, I, you know, I hear the diversity of opinions. I would say I hear a lot from people who do ride BART every day who say, listen, you know, I'm not here for criminalizing, you know, certain behaviors, but when I pay my fare and I see someone – Just step over, push through the gates. There's a part of me that feels a certain unfairness, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's really real. That level of dissatisfaction, whether it's like slight dissatisfaction to extreme frustration to even anger at the Bart board for not doing anything about this, Um, it is a really tough thing. Um, I think, I think a bunch of things. I think one of the things I would love Bart to really pursue, and I've been beginning these conversations with the general manager our new general manager, Bob Powers, is that I really think that BART needs a comprehensive fare policy. There was some version of this past back in, gosh, like maybe 15 years ago, but it's like a one pager that has vague guidelines about fares. Um, but as BART makes different moves around who pays, how much do they pay, how do they pay, um, and how do we ensure that people do pay what they're supposed to pay in the way that they are supposed to pay it? Um, I think these are much broader conversations about how BART treats fares. Um, and we don't have really that policy. I think if we had a policy about being Clipper only, if we had policy about, you know, how we transition to, you know, a Clipper only system or how we view fares and fare gates, um, I think that would be a lot easier for me to really navigate some of these more difficult daily, weekly conversations. Um, so, <clears throat> for example, we don't know how many people fare vaid. We don't know that we don't know the costs of fair evasion. Um, I know SF Chronicle, you've done <clears throat> a lot of um, investigative uh, reporting on this. Um, BART hasn't. <laughs> we really need to <laughs> dig into You can read the Chronicle. <laughs> but, you know, we really need to dig into this question. Where is it happening? Um, and why are people fair evading? Mm-hmm. I-, I think those are really real questions. Is it really a question around affordability? Is And does that mean we need to really hurry up, you know, our affordability programs? Yeah, I'm glad that we just decided to participate in the regional means-based fair program. It's only a 20% discount. Um, You know, that's not matched to Muni's discount, which is either free or for Lifeline is 50% off, which is really significant. BART's not there yet. Um, So I, I would like to have larger, you know, more robust conversations on that end. With that said, we need to do something now. Um, the, the customer satisfaction is really plummeting. And for me, we can't wait to figure out why, how, or the impact. Mm-hmm. I think we there's, to a certain degree, we have to start figuring out what can be done. Um, I, From what I can tell, I know, again, SF Chronicle, you've reported on the blitzes in the morning. Um, I've generally heard really positive response from that, and we've also seen increased... Um, fair purchases at those stations when we've been doing those blitzes. Um and that's blitzes just blitzes meaning police. Yeah. Are uh so uh, police are not like front and foremost is actually just um I I apparently how this works. I've I've talked to BART staff. Um you'll see BART staff there wearing these yellow vests and mm-hmm. they're just watching people. They're staying right at the fair gates and they're just sort of watching people as they go in and out. Um and you might wonder, who are those BART staff? Yeah, who are they? So anyone can sign up. So a lot of them are like planners, white-collar workers who don't often get out of the, you know, BART late-side <laughs> office near 90th Street, Oakland BART station. Um, and they just sign up for shifts. They receive training. They're told, you know, what their role and responsibility is. And they show up at those stations at like 5, 5.30 a.m. and Do they
0: get paid extra?
1: Oh, good question. Mm-hmm. Um I, I'm actually not sure. Okay. Uh, I, I know it's not volunteer work. <laughs> that would be really silly. <laughs> Why and would anybody sign up for that? That would be silly and probably not okay. Uh, but I, I really like the idea because it gets like, for example, say the real estate team who's working on housing in East Bay at stations, you know, in the mornings really seeing what the system and what, you know, the system looks like to mm-hmm. everyday riders, right? I think that's really critical. Um, and then with the Fairgate modifications, I... I like Fairgate modifications as a concept. I think it's the right way to go. Um, I have concerns about how they were rolled out at Richmond and Fruitvale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think overwhelmingly – They're kind of
0: weird looking, don't
1: you think? They're weird looking. I spent a lot of time at Richmond. I went with the BART's uh, Accessibility Task Force um, members to be on site and just see how the operations went. Um I think overwhelmingly, my concern is for people with disabilities mm-hmm. and that those accessible uh, fair gates, the orange ones, um, they they're really scary for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to safety, there's both actual and perceived safety. Even if those uh, uh, those fare gates are designed that they can't hit or hurt you, even if that were the case, people feel like they can be hit and seriously hurt. And as an able bodied person, I have no right to tell someone with a disability you know, what their perceptions yeah. of safety should or shouldn't be. Absolutely no right. I think for BART, you know, we've really got to listen to the votes who are most impacted by these decisions, which for me are people particularly um, with mobility disabilities with um, who might be uh, blind. And uh, this is – I think we need to put particular attention there. Um, One of the things, you know, we are going to be receiving a presentation in September, and the board is going to have to deliberate on what to do about these fairgate modifications. Um, Are they planned to
0: expand throughout the system? The board will have to decide
1: after deliberation. That'll come up in September at some point. Is our expectation? I think one of the recommendations I'd like to make, and I've talked to Bart staff about it, um, is that for the accessible wide fairgates to install brand new, top, you know, quality. Fair gates, so that we can begin testing brand new fairgates um, because we're going to have to make that decision somewhere down the line within the next eight to 10 years anyway. And it's a very costly decision. It's estimated at something like $150 million to replace all the fairgates in wow. the entire system. Um, so given that, um, I really like the idea of beginning to test and really having the most high-end accessible fairgate so, you know, we can be trying this out and making sure that special attention is being brought to those accessible fair gates. Mm-hmm.
0: If you could um, snap your fingers and make one major change in BART without money being an issue,
1: what would it be? Oh, that's easy. I want BART to be free.
0: Oh, that's a good one. I thought maybe a second tunnel. Oh, man.
1: <laughs> but if BART were free, yeah? we could use all those revenues for a second Trans Bay rail crossing. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Um, switching gears, you're also a big
0: advocate of street safety for pedestrians and bicyclists. And I noticed, again on Twitter, <laughs> I stalk <laughs> you. You had some choice words for the city's Vision Zero program, um, which aims to eliminate all traffic deaths by 2024. Um, that program has debuted some videos and temporary tattoos lately. <laughs> and I saw on Twitter that you basically hate them <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me I, what you dislike about vision zero and their
1: temporary <laughs> tattoos listen I think vision zero is um, we need to get there the, the fact that the cost of doing business on our streets, whether it's you and me walking on the streets or um, you know anyone biking or just just so we, we have come to a set that fatalities, are part of how traffic moves in a city. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, it's dense. There are a lot of cars. Those accidents will occur. But the thing is that I've had to talk to so many victims of mm-hmm. traffic um, violence, um, families of you know loved ones um, who have lost, um, folks who have lost their loved ones due to traffic uh, crashes, and it is heartbreaking every time. And there's no world that we should be okay with that. So mm-hmm. I think Vision Zero and... Uh, Former Mayor Edley's push to get us there by 2024 to have no more serious injuries or fatalities on our streets caused by traffic crashes is bold, Um, and we need to do that. We need to get there. No temporary tattoo. <laughs> I can promise you this. No temporary tattoo is going to get us there.
0: So describe for <laughs> listeners, too, sadly, this is not visual,
1: yeah. what these things look like. I was told that it was uh, tied to back to school efforts, but I'm also like, why would you put these on your children? So they had three different tattoos. One was the look sign yeah. uh, that you see sometimes when you cross streets with little eyes and it says look with like, arrows each way. Um one of them was, like, a yield to pedestrian sign, and then another one was around, like, speeding, like, safe speeds or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and you
0: don't think temporary tattoos are going to help eliminate traffic death?
1: No, and I, I don't know what message we're trying to send. I don't know what... Parent would put them on their child. <laughs> I don't know what driver would look at a temporary tattoo on a child and be like, "Oh, oh I if only I them. yielded to that pedestrian." <laughs> I'm not sure what world um, that is a message that you want to send. And I'm really, really frustrated that the onus of street safety is consistently put on children <laughs> yeah. or pedestrians, some of the most vulnerable road users already, um, versus you know someone who's driving a vehicle. Um, I I think that, you know, the brunt of the burden of traffic fatalities is overwhelmingly carried by not only pedestrians, but particularly seniors who are walking, Mm -hmm. um, uh, folks who are marginally housed, uh, folks with disabilities are oversubscribed when you look at the folks who are really impacted by traffic violence in the city. And to water it down to a tattoo that your child could wear um, and that's what they're giving away at the Bayview B Magic Back to School celebration was truly insulting.
0: Mm. Did you talk to anybody? Did Vision Zero folks see your tweets? And did you guys have a conversation? Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know if I can say this. You here. can. I give you permission. <laughs> um, so I, I said these statements as myself, mm-hmm. um, as, as just Janice Lee, Outer Sunset resident, just FYI, this is how I feel. And apparently uh, a person at SFMTA who this messaging probably had to go through Mm -hmm. immediately was trying to call my boss to get my number and say, how do I get in contact with Janice? (laughs) Um, So he and I have not connected yet. Um, And, you know, what's interesting is this uh, contract around Vision Zero Outreach is actually is contracted out. They have a PR consultant doing that work. So I did talk to them about it.
0: I'd like to see that contract. Yes.
1: <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I hope to not have to see any kind of communications like that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think that there's a role that PR and outreach and education plays. And mm-hmm. I think that needs to be, um, that, you know, when it comes to how we use our streets, I think this education is critical for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, And that, you know, I hope that there are better ways that we can be talking to folks about the impact that we put on our streets, whether we're walking, biking, driving, taking a bus, what have you. Mm -hmm.
0: So if temporary tattoos aren't the answer, what do you think actually does need to happen to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injuries by
1: 2024? You know, I think I do think that the SFMTA has done really great work in terms of trying to figure out what's going to advance us to that point. I think the four E's that they've put out, uh, education, so we just talked about that, Um, enforcement. I'm a big, big supporter of automated speed enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that Assembly member David Chu has worked incredibly hard on that, and we continue to want to find pathways to get that state authorization. Um, The third thing is uh, engineering, so, Mm -hmm. you know, safe streets, design, how you build the infrastructure um, to prevent crashes from occurring in the first place. And the fourth is evaluation, you know, How are we doing on Mm -hmm. all of this? Um, I think now that we are, so Vision Zero was really adopted and embraced by the city back in 2014, so we're about five years in now. But the
0: numbers have actually gone backwards this year.
1: In some ways, and particularly for pedestrian Mm -hmm. fatalities, right now it's just an untenable situation just within a, you know, what, two, three-week period. Mm -hmm. There were three fatal crashes within a walking distance of where we're sitting right Mm now, um, right near Fifth and Market. Mm Um, And it's a really, really deeply. um, It's the amount of tragedies that we have to face um, that our communities face um, so regularly because of traffic violence is just uh, is inhumane in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, we absolutely have to do something. I think that, you know, what we're hitting really up against is that we need transformative policy to get us there. Um, We need to cut down on the number of folks who can only depend on driving to get around or people who choose driving uh, despite other really great transit options, you know, being possible for them. Um, So I think, you know, whether it's automated speed enforcement, um, when I learned to drive. Um, I learned that the speed limit says 35 miles per hour. Don't worry, don't worry, you can go 40 and no one's gonna give you a ticket. Mm-hmm. And on a good day you can go 45 and no one's gonna blink an eye. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of status quo of how we treat speed in across the US and even in cities like San Francisco is not okay. People die because of that. Um, and I think you know policies like congestion pricing really think you know, puts the pressure on do you really need to drive? And can we really, really push the question of how we are investing in our public transit as a public good so that we have really high quality options for folks to get around uh, where folks don't have to depend on, you know, driving their own car? I often say, if you're in New York City and I'm for some reason hanging out with my friend um, and we want to go to Times Square, I don't know why, high five the Alamos there, um, and we go in Times Square No one in their right mind would say, oh, don't worry. Should we drive or should we take the subway? No one would ever think about offering the option to drive. That would be like if I live in Outer Sunset where I do. And I was like, maybe I'll walk to work today. Six miles, no big deal. (laughs) Like that would never be an option that crossed my mind. And I think, you know, we have to really rethink the investments that we have to put into public transit so that that is a true, real option for people And we really have to cut down on the congestion in our city. I think congestion pricing is, um, you know, a try and true method. You talked about London. Mm -hmm. London has one of the most successful examples uh, in Stockholm Mm -hmm. um, for congestion pricing. And I think that's, you know, really going to be what transforms our city to be safer, to be more livable, to be more affordable and accessible when it comes to our mobility Mm -hmm. options.
0: I know you bike a lot. Do you feel safe riding your bicycle in San Francisco?
1: I have a six-mile bike ride uh, from the Outer Sunset to my office, which is near Market and Octavia. Um, Portions of it are great. Uh, I bike through Golden Gate Park. When it's car-free on Sundays, I feel limitless. Um, Generally, going through the park, it's quite lovely. There's a protected bike lane for half of JFK Drive. It works well, and I get to a panhandle. And it's really, really, when I start... Coming down Oak, and I hit the wiggle mm-hmm. where I'm like, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> gotta pay attention now. Yeah. Um, so, for me, I'm very lucky that uh, as a bike advocate, I get to advocate for bike infrastructure improvements on literally <laughs> the places I bike. Mm-hmm. And so, at this point, you know, there's some great improvements, the protected bike lanes on upper market. Um, it's really great, but there's so much more that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who has to bike on Market Street downtown any day is, um, yeah, I know people who stop biking because of how bad the situation on Market Street is mm-hmm. or, you know, wherever they're biking in from. Um, and it sometimes it might just be a half mile of, um, you know, streets. Like it could be five miles of amazing bike infrastructure, but if there's a half mile or if there's one really bad intersection, that might cause people to change their mind about preferring to bike over taking another option. And so, yeah. so there's so much more work to be done.
0: Cool. Well, you survived our series questions, and now it's time for the lightning round. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Okay.
1: I have a confession. I am a taco person. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's because I have a little mouth, and a burrito is a lot of food. It is. But um, I, I thought about this. I knew I had to choose a place near a BART station, so I'm going to go with Taqueria, Guadalajara. Oh. But the one that is Uh, on 24th street close to 24th mission okay solid
0: what's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco
1: oh my gosh I have another confession (laughs) you don't watch movies I don't watch movies or television so I have to you
0: don't eat burritos you don't watch movies (laughs) and you
1: don't watch television
0: and you don't eat breakfast you told us before we started recording
1: (laughs) I'm really useless in so many ways um I (laughs) the first one that came to mind was Princess Diaries okay (laughs) um (laughs) Which which is great for so many different reasons. Um I'll say Inside Out, the Pixar one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. So you like kid movies, you just don't like adult movies. It's because I don't watch movies as a. <laughs> adults. <tall. laughs> the ones I remember.
0: I guess Inside <laughs> Out
1: came out more recently. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 32. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Where do you like to go for a stiff drink?
1: Ooh. Uh I think I'm gonna have to back Supervisor Rodin on her. Suggestion, which is El Rio. Mm-hmm. But if I want to dance and also have a drink, Jolene's. Big fan.
0: Okay. What was your first concert?
1: <laughs> I do like music. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I will say that. We found something you like. This liked. is so embarrassing. Um, I had friends. I'm going to totally put this on my friends, um, who when I was, gosh, like 12, 13 years old, really liked Dave Matthews' band. <laughs> That's sounds- so bad. Oh, gosh. And I know that they are one of the first acts to play at Chase Center. Yeah, they are. And I, it's been really fascinating because what, like, you know, like, what a uh, flashback, like, just yeah. thinking about Dave Matthews. Are you going to go? Absolutely not. <laughs> but what I've learned is that they are very polarizing men. Some people oh. have some really strong feelings about oh. it. Love <laughs> it or
0: hate it. Kind of like Bart, right? <laughs> um, What was the last book you read?
1: Oh, um, I – I've been inspired to read more lately. I just finished White Fragility, um, which was excellent. That was recommended to me by Jane Kim, mm. who also recommended to me the book I'm reading right now, uh, Capital City by Samuel Stein, which is excellent so far.
0: Okay. I'll have to put it on my list.
1: Um,
0: what is the best BART station?
1: Oh. Oh. I have to choose? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to say Embarcadero. Because it has a really interesting history, which I cannot fully recount, but I learned about when I read Michael Healy's book, BART, um, about its opening. It didn't open right away. And it was a big deal about getting the Embarcadero Station to begin with. Um, And it's the most Mm well-used station in the system. It's in in my own BART district. And it is truly beautiful. I love the waterfront. Uh What is the worst BART station? Oh, that's just rude. <laughs> the worst BART station. Um, it's not the worst BART station, but I really find all the conversations about Glen Park's uh, brutalism <laughs> and whether it's deserving of the uh, what the being on the historic uh-huh. res- register, uh-huh. whatever it is, um, really fascinating. But uh, I like the debates because I think it's brought up a lot of people like who are saying, how could you? That's the ugliest station. Some <laughs> people are like, I love the Brutalist architecture. And so I'll leave it at that. <laughs>
0: That's my station.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it is not the worst.
0: It is one of the best. What is the weirdest thing that you've ever seen or experienced on BART?
1: Oh, man. The weirdest thing. Gosh. Um I I see so many things because uh both while I was running and certainly now people text me everything that they see. Um so I'm going to choose something I saw via Twitter um a few months ago which was um there was a photo of a BART train and all of the seats had been ripped up the cushions it was old it was a legacy train. Mm-hmm. All the cushions had been ripped up almost like someone was playing like floor's lava, you mm-hmm. know, they are like sort of placed all around. And there was also a bike share bike, a Ford Go bike on the train, confusing to me. Mm-hmm. And then there was this person in the corner who was just like watching all this happening, who had this like hilarious look of confusion, frustration and like amusement. Yeah. Um, and to that to this day, I just don't understand like. Why were the cushions ripped up in that way? And why was there a bike share bike? And Mm. why was there only one person sitting there (laughs) next to all the cushions? Very
0: strange. If you had a son, would you name him Bart?
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) In honor. (laughs) Especially not in the Bay Area.
0: You live in the Outer Sunset, which is not among the best-known San Francisco neighborhoods. If somebody's going to spend a day there, what would you recommend that they do?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I do love the Outer Sunset. Uh, Definitely, definitely go to the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Ocean Beach. There's something about sitting on the beach that reminds us of how almost inconsequential much of the things that we fight about and
0: this is true.
1: do in our daily lives are. And there's a moment of sort of inevitability and Zen that I deeply feel every mm-hmm. time I ocean beach It's also a very hostile beach. I sort of like that. It's sort of like, this is how I am. <laughs> love me or hate me. <laughs> I love that about it. Um, if you're coming through the park, go check out the bison. I am so sad to hear one of the bison passed mm-hmm. away. Um, and I live near devil's teeth. Mm-hmm. So if you have a sweet tooth, or you really enjoy a solid breakfast sandwich, mm-hmm. definitely check out Devil's Teeth, um, And just enjoy being able to hear your thoughts and yourself and be able to enjoy nature. And wear layers. And wear layers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day?
1: Hmm. I wouldn't say this always um, and definitely less so now, but... Uh, a secret of mine is that I'm a huge video game nerd. Oh. I love playing video games. It was really sad. Um, while campaigning, as I got more busy, I didn't get to play all the time. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, my de- de-stressing was to play one game of Dota 2, um, which is funny because it can be a very stressful game. But um, it was a great way to concentrate <laughs> on something. I need to fully concentrate when I play video games. Um, and that was a good way to get me out of, you know, the headspace of my everyday. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's fun to talk
1: to you. Thank you, Heather.
0: Thank you to Janice Lee for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.